He who fights monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. I am on the unfettered pursuit of truth. I'm Kayla Perry, and this is Honestly Unorthodox. Right. Well, everybody, welcome back. We skipped a week. So for the seven people that are listening to this podcast, I know that you are probably experiencing withdrawals from the last week where there was nothing. But I have heard a ton of you give me feedback and I have my favorite guest here, Dr. Meryl Winston. We have received all kinds of feedback from you guys about our podcast with Polly and Steve Ward. And uh, now we're back because Meryl just, he, but the both of us just didn't get to everything that we wanted to say. So what better place than right here? Am I right, Meryl? I, that, that is correct. And I just, I, I didn't have enough opportunities to interrupt you on the previous podcast. <laughs> yeah. so I was hoping to get a few more in on this one. I was going to say, I felt very offended that you didn't interrupt me enough times. I felt as if you were not paying attention to me. So now we will redeem ourselves. How about that? that that's right. You know, interrupting people means caring. That's, that's, <laughs> that, that's the message. That's that, how we show our love in these parts. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Meryl, can I read a message to you really quickly? And because I want your thoughts. Please, but this is going to bother me. Is it? Is your shirt torn up near the it shoulder? Is. Yeah, it is. Okay. I just wanted to know if that was like a pattern or it's just because like I had another one on where it's like torn like right there, but you know, I changed it. I'm adding to my gritty appeal. As you can see, my sleeves have holes in them. This is... Oh, if you have more than one, it's a fashion statement. If you just have one, you're a slob. So, this uh, is sloppy. The other two that I'm showing, the other eight great. that I'm showing Meryl, uh, they totally. add. Yeah. Yeah. They add character. Okay. All right. Sorry. I was distracted. Uh, you were saying? I'm feeling weirdly self-conscious right now, but I will continue <laughs> because I guarantee you I'm not traumatized by this. Okay. Are we ready? This is a statement that was... Well, actually, it was publicly posted, so we'll we'll discuss it while keeping everybody anonymous. Um, someone presented this person with an article that served to disconfirm their viewpoint, and here was the response. The question's at the end of the article. I did my best to read it, but between my reading disability and burnout, I basically had to scan it. I'm trying, but April is particularly difficult. If you were extremely adversely affected by a reading disability, I don't know that you'd be able to scan something. Um, yeah, I mean, scanning is something uh, just off the top of my head. Uh, scanning is something that you do when you're fluent. Right. That's an advanced skill. It's an advanced it's an advanced skill. You you skip and you look for topic sentences. You look for summary statements. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Unless somebody, I mean, unless they didn't, you know, I don't, I don't know what they meant when they said that. Some people say skimmed. Um, but either way, I, I don't know what they meant, but if it's what most people mean when they say it, yeah, that's kind of an advanced skill. Yeah. Anyway. If the implication was skimming, which it sounds like it was based on the context, which was I couldn't read it because of my disability. So I just decided to choose the, the important parts. Um, uh, so, so, so your disability allows you to read important parts, but not uh, your, your, wait, your disability is such that it allows you to discern the important from the 
parts. Uh-huh. Which again is difficult for people without a reading disability, right? I mean, that's well, well, you know, it might be a new disability that allows you to just cut right to the heart of the matter and disregard anything that goes against your biases. Especially if it is rampant in April com- in in <laughs> comparison to the other months of the year, which was stated. Um, that would be one of the uh, uh, cyclic lunar reading disabilities. Oh, it, it aligns perfectly with the moon cycle. Isn't that a holiday? That's what, a, uh, what is it? Ramadan? I think Eid. Eid and Ramadan are based on the moon cycle. Oh. Yeah. Uh-huh. They're Muslim holidays. So clearly this they disability are. is quite congruent with uh, the the lunar eclipse and, and whatnot. It's, I don't want to be quoted on that. <laughs> uh, Should we edit that part out? What <laughs> the point by the person with unusual reading skills? The point. So they, the point was, I appreciate you sending me this article and information, but because of my disability, I don't like it. However, here's 15 paragraphs about why I think I'm correct, and here's my articles that I think. Yeah, that sounds read. like a lot of escape avoidant behavior. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and a lot. Of- a lot of people do a lot of things like that. Like, here's the reason why I can't respond directly to something that demonstrates to me that I'm not correct. It's 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 an right. elaborate, it sounds like an elaborate escape avoidant repertoire, which a lot of people have, and they get really good at them, and they get reinforced, and they use them in all their arguments, and mm-hmm. then people don't want to argue with them anymore, and consequently, nobody ends up learning anything. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, it's, it's, it, it's those kinds of arguments and those kinds of ways of arguing with people. Those are primarily for maintaining one's integrity. Right. Yeah. Uh, again, outside criticism, I mean, and, you know, because yeah. that's fairly clear, you know, I think. But it's also um, it's hard because a lot of these conversations flip flop between scientific fact when it's kind of convenient, but it seems yes. to be more of a moral identity issue which is very hard to argue about how how can you argue per se or logically i guess argue about one's morality i mean that's right that's and, and, the, and the thing is that that actually comes that actually comes down to how you know the individual uh, when they're it depends on the words that they're using about it and i think that i think one of the unfortunate ones is somebody came up with compassion which really wasn't wasn't the it, it was a good word to um emotionally jerk people around it was a good word for that because Absolutely. compassion has a lot of emotional hooks in it sure um you know so that was a good word to use if you're gonna if you want to move somebody around emotionally right that's kind of a good word to use but it's not really accurate in terms of the problems people are describing and that's that's you know i'm always in i'm always curious you know, as a behavior analyst, not just about uh, the kids and the adults we work with, not just about the behavior of the parents. I'm concerned about the behavior of people in the field as well. And their behavior is also lawful, just like the parents and the clients and everybody else. And we're Mm -hmm. all together. And I'm always looking at these behaviors. And um, I think that what people aren't clear on is they don't really have a way to say. Um, and by the way, some people are just mean, no matter yep. what. They do. Right. Some 
this is this is what's confusing. And I, I want to be like really clear on this. Anybody can be an asshole in any profession. Physician, plumber, electrician, it doesn't matter. There, there's, you know, any anybody can be one. Now, certain people are less likely to be them in certain professions. Like you're hoping your therapist isn't an incredible asshole, okay? Sure. Because it's kind of in that particular one, they, you know, in a professional capacity, they kind of have to not be one. Now, what about what about an attorney? What about an attorney? It can be argued well, it's beneficial to kind of have asshole qualities. Well, well, there are there are times though, depending on the nature of the litigation. I just I went through a divorce last year, and I can tell you with no uncertain no uncertain terms, my attorney was part therapist. Mm. Okay, my attorney was compassionate, and what I mean by that is not the law he quoted, not the legal procedure he used. He was compassionate in that when I told him I hadn't planned on it being this difficult, his face changed and he said, I understand, you know, I, I was divorced too. Mm -hmm. And I remember when it happened and, and, and he looked like to me, he felt sad. Yeah. So, you know, in that capacity, um, for this kind of legal work in this particular legal capacity, mm -hmm. right. He was compassionate. Now, if, if, if he's got somebody on the witness stand, okay, a lot more of an asshole. Absolutely. Okay? Uh, but that is the role of the individual. Uh, right. And that's, that's kind of the way it, it goes. And so, um, but, you know, so generally, so anybody can be that. And what people confuse is that some people who may have become behavior analysts just may not be the nicest people. Right. Okay. And this is what confuses people, or or they um, they may not be the most competent. This is another issue, and nobody discusses this, and it really pisses me off because competence is an issue in every other discipline. Right. Okay, what do you call a doctor who's really bad? A quack. It has a special name for God's sake. What do you call an attorney who really only cares about making money? An ambulance chaser. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in, and, and it's not that there aren't virtuous attorneys. There sure as hell are. They've stood up for people. They're civil rights advocates. Okay. It's, it's, it's complex. People are complex. The world is complex. You know, things work different ways. Right. So, you know, when um, people make these blanket statements, you know, about compassion or this or that and the other, um, I, I think what they're really confusing is, Procedures I don't like. There's yeah. another confusion, in, and that's this. People don't say this. People with special needs should never have a bad time. People with special needs should never cry. People with special needs should never suffer because they're already suffering. Now, mm -hmm. nobody ever says this out loud. Nobody ever says this out that's loud. That's the implication. It's the implication. Now, here's what I say. If you want people with special needs or any other insert, whatever diagnosis if you want. If you want them to have a shot at the closest thing to the same kinds of lives that we have, then there's going to be suffering. There has to be, there's no there way around it. If you, want, if you want them to be, if you want, now you may not want this for them and maybe they don't want it for them. That's not my decision. I'm just right. saying, if this is where you're coming from, 
And if you want them to have the greatest opportunities available to them, okay, mm -hmm. so they can go anywhere and do anything, then they're going to end up suffering because they have to let their will bend to the will of the greater society. That's mm -hmm. what it means to be socialized. It, right. it, it means you constantly can't get things exactly your way. You constantly are inconvenienced. There are constantly things happening that you're not very happy about, okay? Yep. And people get very vociferous about these things, right? It's an everyday occurrence in society. Mm -hmm. Society is a collection of people in basic agreement that they're not going to kill each other, okay? Right. This is basically what it is, all mm -hmm. right? That's like, like, I can trust you walking down the street. You won't suddenly attack me because we all agreed we're in this society together. We are citizens of the United States. We've all agreed we're going to obey these laws and pay our taxes. And that's what the kind of society is. It is your will bending to the will of the greater society, mm -hmm. right? I don't think Merrill Winston should have to stop at red lights. He's a good driver. He should be able to use his judgment. Should make no. his own rules. No, the greater will says, no, you got to stop like everybody else. Yeah. Sorry. Okay, this is, this is society. And so eventually people are going to have contingencies and they're not going to get things free and they're going to be pissed off as hell when they didn't earn what they were supposed to because they didn't engage in the appropriate behavior. Mm -hmm. And then that's where it comes close to the real world, you know, and, and it's well, um, also really quick to cut you off. I'm sure. really interested in the, the term supposed to, there are a lot of things that Ooh. we are supposed to do that we don't get recognized for, that we don't get rewarded for. And we, a lot of the times we make nothing of it. And we're often unaffected by an absence of a celebration about stuff we're supposed to do. Why is it so different for disabilities? Does it speak to the fact that we think that they're already far behind of the start line when they start their life? So they shouldn't have to do things that they're supposed to the way other people do? Is it that it's harder for them. So we need to show them more recognition for it. I mean, I just, I have a problem with turning everything into this parallel universe for people with disabilities simply because they have a disability. Yeah. And actually in a manner of speaking, um, I like to talk about these two words and we talk about how we treat uh, others who mm -hmm. are in a different group. And that is, I like to talk about the concepts of accommodation and discrimination. Mm. They're actually about the same thing. It mm. just depends on how you feel about it. So as an example, um, we treat children differently in fundamental ways, some fundamental ways, not in base ways like human rights. I should say in some very specific ways, not fundamental, some specific ways. Mm -hmm. We treat children differently from adults, okay? Right. Uh, because we must. Okay, we are, um, uh, I was gonna talk about this concept later, like uh, with parenting styles, we are more permissive with children, young children. Not only are we more permissive with what we will allow them to do, get away with, not have a consequence for, not worry about, the government is more permissive. Our laws are structured sure. in a, at first for very young children, extremely permissive. As you get into teen years, it's less permissive. Now you got, you might go to juvie. Mm -hmm. And then when you turn 18, it is at least permissive. You go to the general population. Right. Um, and so of course a four-year-old 
they're not sending to Judy. Right. Even if they shoot someone, which four-year-olds have. Right. So there, again, it's permissiveness based on age. Now, this same permissiveness, uh, which should not be confused with compassion, by the way, mm-hmm. we'll talk about that later. Um, in fact, the more permissive you are, the less you need to use compassion. We'll get into that. Uh, but but um, uh, the permissiveness is necessary because if you weren't highly permissive with a very young child, mm-hmm. right? Um, it would be egregious because they just don't have the skills to comply with what we need them to. Mm -hmm. They don't know what to do. They don't have the level of self-control. They're missing so many things. And what we do is we cut them slack. And that's what being permissive is. Mm -hmm. Um, Permissiveness is not bad. For a very young child, you have to be. The legal system has to be that way. Right? I know you're only three, kid, but you punch this kid in the face, you're doing time. (laughs) Off to the pen you go. Ignorance to the laws, no excuse. It doesn't say anything about toddlers. <laughs> Get in the cell. Uh, okay. Um, you know, we, 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 you're going to have permissiveness. It's yeah. not, by the way, permissiveness with a child that's three. Mm-hmm. Please don't confuse this. That's not being nice. Permissiveness no. is just necessary. Right. You can't lower the boom on a three-year-old. It doesn't work. Right. Everybody everybody gets me. It's not, oh, aren't you being nice? No, I'm doing what's necessary. Mm -hmm. You might even be an asshole and be permissive, but they too would be doing what's necessary. Right. Even the asshole doesn't press charges against their three-year-old. You know, I mean, (laughs) you know, they, they, they're mad about it, but they're not, they're not suing their own kid. You know, (laughs) Um, it's, they're still permissive. They're still permissive. Our society is still permissive. When a three-year-old strips her clothes off at the Walmart, it's cute, okay? When a 13-year-old does it, it's decidedly less cute. Yeah. And and people are not permissive. And the Walmart manager doesn't go, oh, isn't that adorable? Uh, Okay. (laughs) Which they might say of a three-year-old. Right. So this this concept of permissiveness, it's a real thing and it's not bad. It is necessary at various stages. The question is, do you take it too far? And do you carry it on for too long? What might taking permissiveness too far look like? Uh, That would be never arranging any contingencies. So as an example, as an example, permissive parents um, basically don't make the kid earn anything. Don't take anything away. There are really no consequences. They just go clean up after them after they break shit. Okay. And then they they go and they, well, and they go, Oh, boys will be boys, you know, (laughs) and like stuff is flying around. Cleaning it away. Oh, oh, what are you going to do? You know? And, but that's usually when the kid doesn't have a severe behavior problem. But um, I, I think that the problem with that is that it doesn't teach people the self-control skills, there's no opportunities to get the self-control skills that you're going to need when things don't go your way, when you are disappointed, when you lose something, you know, and the other problem is, is society is a society at large, once you're an adult, is not so permissive. Right. Okay. And so we set people up for problems later. So when when we make um, excessive permissiveness, right? Which is fine as antecedent manipulations. I even tell people, if you've got somebody that's super dangerous, you do what I would call unreasonable, unsustainable 
antecedent manipulations. Why? You don't want everybody's nose broken. Okay. <laughs> this is, by the way, and that's not compassion. That is just smart. Okay. Correct. There's a difference. It's just smart and you're preventing damage. It's what's known as prudent. Okay. It, it is a good idea and it's much safer. However, it's not sustainable. And so the thing yeah. is, unless you're going to, we, we call them, um, Ogden Lindsley used to call when we replace glass with Lexan and when we bolt things down, Ogden Lindsley, um, who was one of Skinner's students, he used to call that prosthetizing the environment, prosthetizing the environment. And so the thing is, does that work? Yeah, as long as they live there forever. Exactly. <laughs> the, the behavior undergoes extinction. They stop trying to pound the windows. They stop trying to move furniture that can't be moved, right? And so in that sense, it works. If they're going to live there forever, it's a solution. Sure. If they're going to go anywhere else, it's creating a larger problem that has not been addressed. And this, this is part of the problem of antecedent manipulations gone wild. This is part of the problem of the child can never be upset if the child has a tantrum you just traumatized them. That's trauma. That's incorrect. It's called the child had a tantrum. Right. And all of us would rather that we work with learners that weren't tantruming. And in fact, when the kid's tantruming, I don't even try to work with them. Why would you? Um, however, the tantrum is not trauma. The tantrum is not the diagnostic criteria for PTSD or any of the other anxiety disorders or uh, trauma related or stressor disorders, trauma or stressor related disorders, not any of those. Okay, a tantrum. Uh, so I think that those are some of the consequences if you never get there. Now, like when we talked on the last, last podcast and Dr. Hanley's system, um, Dr. Hanley understands that these, this per, he doesn't call it permissiveness, but that's what it is, that right. this permissive approach, the my way, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not even criticizing that. We do it as and adults. Yeah, and, and I have done similar things, and many people have. But see, here's the here's the issue: L giving the kid their way. That's not what compassion is. That's called permissiveness. Mm -hmm. Compassionate is when the child is suffering, and there's really not anything you can do about it. And we say, "Oh, <laughs> you try to ease it a little bit by going ah." Now, right. who who would need to use? Who would need to feel compassion more? A permissive parent or what's known as an authoritarian parent. As long as we're doing it, I should give all the parenting types. The parenting types are permissive, authoritarian, that's in the middle. I'm sorry, author authoritative is in the middle, yeah. So permissive, authoritative, authoritarian, that's the a-hole, and then the uninvolved, that's the one who's like fell asleep uh, with a six pack in front of the television sure. and doesn't know they're on the roof. So that would be like the last category. So, and uh, none of the parenting styles are like necessarily like, well, uninvolved is not great. Mm -hmm. And many, you know, many uh, experts recommend that middle style, which is the authoritative, which is what Glenn Latham taught in The Power of Positive Parenting. Right. Um, and so the, um, the authoritative parent, that's the one who needs compassion the most and likely uses it the most. The, the, the authoritarian parent is, is like, you can't have it because you didn't earn it. And they're like, cry, man up and stop right. crying. That's controlling okay? that and punishing. That would, be, that would be punishing and that would be coercive. Mm -hmm. And there's no compassion there at all. 
Right. Even though compassion was called for because their child is suffering because they couldn't get something. And right. instead of giving compassion, instead of feeling compassion and engaging in what you call compassionate behaviors, which are driven by the feeling of sadness for your child and that they are suffering, you're trying to ease it a tiny bit without completely capitulating and caving in. Um, by the way, parents who are trying to transition from a permissive style to an authoritative style, what mm. they often do is they try to set a contingency like an authoritative parent. Yes, sweetie, you may watch television, but I am going to need you to clean your room first. And then the child starts having a meltdown and then the parent feels compassion and then they feel, oh, poor thing. But can there be too much compassion? I would argue yes, and here's what it would look like. If you had the right amount of compassion, it looks like this. Sweetie, I'm sorry you didn't get your toy. I know you're upset. Tomorrow is another chance, and I'm sure you'll be able to get it tomorrow. You'll feel better soon. Okay, that would be like a little bit of compassion. That's just the right amount, a touch on the shoulder. This is what Glenn Latham used to teach, okay? This is what he used to teach. It's a small amount of compassion. It's showing. It bothers me that, that you're unhappy, son. It bothers me a little bit. And I feel bad about this a little bit. That's, that's all it is, right? Now, if you, were, if you went crazy on compassion and you were a permissive parent trying to transition to the authoritative style and your child is suffering and you can't bear it any longer, you're like, oh, okay, you can have it. And what happens is, it's po as we all know, it's positive reinforcement of the child's behavior. It's a negative reinforcement paradigm for the parent's behavior. It relieves guilt, anxiety, sadness, bad feelings, et cetera, and then they get better again, right? So what happened is they tried to make it to the authoritative, but their compassion overwhelmed them, and they flipped back to permissive at the worst possible time. Do you think that people who just their their own sense of this is what it means to be a good parent overrides the actual logic of the situation, which is I need to stick to my guns? Um, I, I think I don't know if it's if it's this is what a good parent is. I just think it's like uh, they may tell themselves that, but I think it's like I, I can't I can't stand this anymore. Now, if people didn't want to blame themselves and say they may say something like. Like somebody that was very honest with themselves might say, I want to try and do this authoritative style, but I just I feel can't. so guilty. Like yeah. I've had parents tell me this about like their own kids. Yeah, like, uh, I know that he needs to be strained and I've even tried it myself, but it just, I can't, it just tears me up inside. Mm -hmm. I understand that, but sure. this is, that's my example. And that's why some parents, they cannot do what they need to do, even restraining their own children. It's mm -hmm. just because one of the reasons is, and I've restrained plenty of children and adults, is they're suffering when they're being restrained. They're not necessarily in pain. In fact, I haven't been with one where like they are in pain because we use painless procedures, but they are emotionally in turmoil. They are mm -hmm. crying. They are screaming. Some of them are saying, let me go. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you do, they're dangerous and they'll hit you and you have to wait till they reach criteria for calm, which they do. But point being, it is very emotional. It is very difficult. And not everybody can do this because you do have to have some compassion. And one of the reasons that it's good to have compassion, feel for the person while you're restraining them, is that you're less likely to injure them. So I, as an example, I would tell people, if I'm restraining somebody's kid in a school somewhere, I don't do that anymore, but I used to have to do it a lot when I consulted. For the moment that I'm doing it, it's my kid. 
I am the responsible adult, adult and loco parentis in place of the parent. I am doing what the parent is either incapable of doing, right? Or uh, doesn't want to, okay? It's, or both, you know? And so um, it's, it's providing a service. You have to have a level of compassion. I do worry about the person. However, my compassion does not get the better of me. And when the child is crying, I don't say, oh, he's crying. Oh, no. This we better let him respond. Even though he's dangerous, even though he's dangerous, mm-hmm. a lot of people cry, but everybody doesn't even cry. Every right. people have different responses on the mat. People have different responses when they're being restrained. It depends on the individual. Um, but anyway, my point being is that that's the time for compassion. You feel for the person when they're in crisis. It is unpleasant for them. It is unpleasant for the people doing the restraint. Nobody likes doing it. Right. And you feel for the person. Right. That's the compassionate part. It's not this compassionate people don't restrain. Right. That doesn't even Very make any black sense. black and white. Uh, right. You, you know, you have to, some of the things that we do for uh, people's benefit, they don't like and they don't understand, like car seats, like medical procedures. And so sometimes this is what people don't understand. They think that being compassionate is always making the person happy or always doing what the person wants or never letting them suffer. That is incorrect. Being compassionate, you might be the one making them suffer. Like a parent who says, sweetie, I know you want to go to this party, but you are 14. There are 16 year olds there. I am not comfortable with it. I know all your friends are going to be there and I know you're very disappointed but I can't let you do it. And like, I hate you. I'm really sorry, sweetie. You know, that that's where the compassion comes in there, not with permissiveness. And the thing is, that is a necessary thing if you are going to have children that meet expectations and follow rules and become socialized. You know, it's the, these people, people get, um, that's part of the problem is that even with positive reinforcement, even if you're using positive procedures, if they don't, enforcement contingency, it must be denied and that will produce an emotional response. That doesn't make you a bad person because someone is learning how to handle not getting their way. Well, it's just putting too, it's putting too much stock in the outcome and the overall perception of what something looks like than the intent and the reasoning and the logic behind what we're doing. I mean, if, if you look at treatment for someone who's an addict, that is one of the most painful, emotionally painful and physically painful for those that have really bad withdrawals. That yeah. is hell for those people. And compassion gone wild, that might look like, you know what, this is just, it's really hard for me to watch you. You're puking your brains out. You're shaking. You are sweating. You look like actual death. Let me I'm just, just give you a bump. You, I'm just going to give you a bump. Yeah. And the thing yeah. is, that's not, that's not what compassionate is. Not at all. Compassionate is the feeling. The action you take that makes someone feel better, that may or may not be a good idea. So as an example... Um, the person that, uh, I may have had to restrain who is very dangerous. And I'll give you a great example. This individual was smashing his knee into his face 80 times an hour. Okay. And hard, like he was trying to kick a soccer ball with his knee. Only it was his face. 
And so we had to do to stop him because he would not keep his knee down. We finally had to do, because they didn't want us to do it, but we said, no, we're, we're doing this. We finally did a three-person prone hold with him. Mm-hmm. And we stopped it almost, it, we stopped, it stopped immediately. He was safe immediately. Um, the procedure lasted maybe six minutes. And during the procedure, he cried. And when I say cried, I mean like boo-hoo, yeah. okay? He cried. I, we told his mother of this episode. This is an adult we worked with, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, we told his mother and she, um, we told her about the procedure and she goes, I understand that he cried during the procedure. I said, he absolutely did. Mm-hmm. And she goes, I can't help thinking that he was sad. And I said, he may have been. I go, but we didn't do the procedure to make, make him, him sad. sad. Right. We did it even though it might make him sad. When they gave me the lumbar puncture, they didn't do it to cause me pain. They did it knowing it would cause me pain. Even though it would cause me pain, they did it. Those are two different distinctions. There's two different acts going on when you do something to cause someone pain and when you do something even though it may cause pain. Just like an authoritative parent forbidding their child to do something or not to reinforce her because they simply didn't earn it. Okay. And so I feel like our entire life functions on the, even though for the most part, if, if we want to derive meaning from most anything, a lot of it means delaying any positive feeling. And a lot of it means taking steps to get to something, a farther, more distant meaning, even though it hurts, even though it's painful, even though it takes a lot of critical self-reflection or whatever it is. And, th- and that's where the compassion from others comes in. And so the thing is, it's, it's, not, um, it's not either or. And typically what happens with, if you'll, you'll look at just the development of most kids, right? It goes from permissiveness. If you look at elementary school, middle school, high school, the disciplinary actions for different age kids and the kinds of things they do, it goes from permissive to authoritative sometimes being a dick authoritarian uh you know um but that's i mean most most of um most of our government is really authoritarian like you know like if i made a mistake on my taxes the irs doesn't send me a letter saying meryl we're really disappointed in you um we know that you meant to pay your taxes and we we know it's going to sting a little bit. There's going to be a small penalty. But we're sure that you'll do better next year. Like the IRS doesn't do that. They just like <laughs> threaten the hell out of you. Okay. Sure. Um, but that's, you know, so it's, um, I, I think that's as long as, you know, we have to move people at some point into something that is somewhat like authoritativeness. And that is, you have to earn this. You might not get this. Things don't go your way. Okay. And it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't even mean being, uh, that's the other thing people get confused with. Some people are just mean to people. Like they're just nasty people and maybe they just happen to be in our field. Mm -hmm. And so the thing is, you know, again, punishment is not evil. And if you used it in any capacity, it doesn't make you evil. Okay, Glenn Latham used it, a typical punisher, like a loss of a reinforcer, giving up the car keys, right? 
but here's what people don't understand. If you don't, if you didn't read about uh, Glenn's work and his book, and if you didn't know him, is that Glenn was he was perfectly compassionate. Perfectly, he was not a permissive parent at all. Right, because they're and, two different things. Yeah, and he even said his children did every horrible thing except maybe murder. Okay, <laughs> he said all of his children. <laughs> and and um, that was like his line. That was like his one-liner that, you know, mm -hmm. they weren't and they and things were not perfect. Sure. And there were times that he was mad and he had to keep it to himself because he didn't want to show it to his kids. And what Glenn, what Glenn showed me and what he showed many people is punishment and coercion are not the same thing. And you can be the punisher without being coercive at all. And you can be compassionate. Uh, I'm going to give you an example of a punisher I used one time and it, and I maintained my relationship with my cat, my cat <laughs> Susie, a long time ago. And you, anybody can do this experiment. It requires a, a, a squirt bottle with like a 25 foot range. Mm -hmm. And so it was, um, he was like messing with curtains. He was trying to scratch them because he wasn't declawed and he shouldn't be doing that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't want to yell at him. I don't want to come over there and like you scare him. I don't right. want to do this stuff, but I need him to stop. So I got the squirt bottle. He went over there. I just went like, like, and it just hit him like right on the head. It just arced over beautifully. <laughs> right between the eyes. <laughs> and then he ran to me. And I'm like, what's the matter, buddy? Did you get wet scratching the curtains? And he's like, yeah, you know, I don't know what happened. Like, Man, you probably should stay away from there. That's awful. Um, you know, he didn't, he didn't know that I did it, but right. it was punishment. It was, it was punishment is clear. He didn't know I was the agent. Mm -hmm. And so the thing is, I can maintain my relationship. I can be compassionate when he comes over. I wiped off his little head. Okay. And <laughs> oh, poor guy, you're all wet. I right. was still compassionate. Now, what would have been non-compassionate? What would have been callous? Ha! You won't try that again, will you? Now you're all wet. Yeah. Right. Right. You, you do. <laughs> okay. That would, that would be callous. That would be callous, right? Yeah. After you. And so the thing is, I was the one who set up the punishment, just like the medical professional who gave me the lumbar puncture, mm -hmm. right? But I was still compassionate and my cat didn't hate me because he didn't know that I did it. Um, but <laughs> any, anyway, that's, I'm, 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 I'm giving that example to separate a punishment procedure from the human being doing it. Mm -hmm. okay? And that the human being can still be a good person and a nice person. Mm -hmm. And the human being can still be somebody that the individuals run to. And by the way, that's why Glenn Latham would tell his son when he gave him the information, which is aversive, that you violated the contingency. When you tell someone you didn't meet the contingency or you violated the contingency, you're delivering an aversive mm -hmm. verbally. That's why many people go off on staff when they go, oh, that's cursing. Now you can't have pizza party and then tables go flying. Yeah, yeah. The reason tables go flying is that person who thinks they're doing a, well, technically is doing a positive reinforcement procedure like a DRO. If you have no punching, then you get pizza, right? right. That's just a positive reinforcement paradigm, right? Mm -hmm. Well, people inadvertently turn it into what looks like punishment because what they actually do is when they inform people of the violation of the DRO, which you're not supposed to do anyway, because the schedule should do it by itself. Um, that when they inform people of their violation of the DRO, it's like pun it's like attempted punishment 
It isn't punishment, but what they're doing is delivering an aversive that is not a punisher, but is what I call a pisser offer. And all that means <laughs> is that it is not sufficiently aversive to punish the behavior that produced it, but it is sufficiently aversive to elicit some physiological changes. And uh, there, it's 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 equivalent to fighting bullets at the Hulk. It will not stop the Hulk, but man, does it piss him off. Okay, it's the same thing. Uh, and so my point being is that even when people think, oh, we only use positive procedures, anything with a contingency attached to it, you're going to piss somebody off. And that isn't that isn't indicative of a pathology or a diagnosis. No, that is the nature of life. Of the human condition and any animal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, it's, uh, nobody, everybody would rather, okay, um, who, who said it best? Dire straits. They get their money for nothing and their chicks for free. Okay. Like everybody would rather have their money for nothing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, all right. Everybody would rather have their money. No, no, no. I would prefer to go out and slave away all day. Now, I mean, uh, I mean, there might be, I'm sure there's a few people who would, but I think both sure. of us would rather have money for nothing. Right. Um, you know, and then we could go do the things we love and we wouldn't have to worry about it, you know. Uh, but yeah, as soon as you introduce a contingency, anybody interested in finding out more about uh, positive reinforcement and the negative effects, read the paper by Michael Perrone in The Behavior Analyst. I forget what year, it was a while ago, years ago, but Mike Perrone, P-E-R-O-N-E, -E, and it's called The Negative Effects of Positive Reinforcement. And there are a ton of them. And, and many of them produce emotional responding that some people would label as trauma. Can we stay on this topic of emotional responding and trauma and trying to shove a normal routine human reaction to things that piss us off? We're trying to find a way to make sure it makes its way into the DSM. One, why are we trying to make sure it makes its way into the DSM? And two, what... I guess maybe a shorter question would be um, what are, what's, what's the good that could come from making sure everything qualifies as a possible traumatic event? Uh, yeah, I think there's nothing good that could come from it and everything bad. And what, yeah. you know, this is, I call it, uh, somebody probably called it this before me because it's too good a phrase. So forgive me if somebody else heard it, but I just call it the diseasification of America. Uh, okay. <laughs> and it's, and everyone in it. I don't know if it's as yeah. bad in Europe, but I will say this, just as an example, most folks don't know this. Mm -hmm. The rate of psychotropic medication use with children in the United States is like astronomical. It's, it, in the UK, it's 10 children out of 100, maybe, that would be on psychotropics. In the US, it would be 90 out of 100 with yeah. behavior problems. Mm -hmm. um, and so what that says to me is that we did what we tend to do. Look, another behavior analyst once said to me, um, Meryl, you need to make a distinction between like real mental illness and bogus mental illness. And I go, what do you mean? And they go, you know, like real mental illness, like schizophrenia and not this bogus mental illness like ADHD. And, and I said to them, I go, how do you draw a line between what is real and what is bogus? And you know what came back? This is what came back. And this happens with a lot of people. ADHD although it is problematic for people with that label, okay, some of the thing, the symptoms, right? ADHD seems to those who don't have it as something that is understandable. Mm -hmm. Understandable. 
I can't focus sometimes. And then the person might say, yeah, but you don't understand. It's really, really bad with me. So, but we can understand that because I can understand. I can't focus sometimes. Sometimes I keep forgetting what happened. Sometimes I keep going back and forth and can't remember what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Is it really severe? No, but I can relate. Now, if somebody says I have schizophrenia and sometimes I stop talking for weeks, I can't fucking relate to that. That's very hard to relate to. I can't relate to that. And I don't understand it. And every time we don't understand things, uh, even behavior analysts, they stop analyzing. Mm -hmm. They don't understand PTSD. They don't understand PTSD. Most behavior analysts don't. Because right. if they did, they wouldn't be saying, I think he's got trauma. They wouldn't be using that sentence. Because that makes it's nonsensical in the realm it's of understanding PTSD. For people who work with individuals with PTSD, that is a nonsensical statement. He Correct. has trauma. What do you mean? What are you talking about? Right. Okay. It's not like a Gucci purse. It's not like a possession. Uh, well, <laughs> well, but, but somebody say, some people say it like there is something in you. Mm -hmm. You can't see it now or the effects of it. It's like the boogeyman. It's there somewhere. But if you see any kind of problem come up, that's the trauma. Well, see, now we're getting into this whole new, so, well, I guess relatively new, relatively new concept of complex trauma, which is- Yeah, you told there, me about that the other yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, there isn't a qualifying traumatic event, but the, I guess the symptoms that one experiences are identical to, if or the same as someone having the symptoms of PTSD without a qualifying traumatic event. Yeah, that's kind of weird because um, I was mentioning it in the talk I did on trauma. PTSD, what they said in the DSM, PTSD was very special when it appeared like in the early 90s or late 80s. I can't remember which it was, late 80s. Um, it was very special because it was the first disorder with an external, a clear external qualifying event. Mm -hmm. And when it was so called shell shock. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that what they're doing is they're taking a landmark disorder and they're just taking away the most critical aspect of it. And that is an ex a clear external qualifying event. Right. And what's what's a big problem with CPTSD is now we're we're cre we're we're taking a things that we feel are symptomatic of PTSD and we're walking backwards towards a conclusion, which is not only the complete opposite of how science works, but it's a huge problem when we say I feel nervous sometimes. I have butterflies. I shut down emotionally. I feel unable to manage myself in confrontational situations. Oh, it must be because of that time 26 years ago when my dad didn't go to my basketball game. Right. That That's not only is it highly the theoretical, mm -hmm. it's not even a good theory. Correct. Like, how yeah. did you even get to that theory? Like, who got a hold of your brain and twisted it? Unless How did you, you kept reading, unless you kept reading blog after blog after blog, and you heard coach after coach it's, it's tell you. Application. It's rule application. So it's like, this happened to them. They have this. Well, that happened to me. I have this. I mean, it's the simplest, simplest deductive reasoning using a faulty major premise. And, that, and that's what's going on in our field a lot. People are being... People are swallowing whole faulty major premises like, here's another faulty major premise. Everyone knows restraint is traumatizing. 
I just read that on a website yesterday. Oh no. Everyone knows restraint is traumatizing. That is a faulty major premise. That is not true. And not only is it faulty because it, it's, uh, well, here's the main reason it's faulty. Traumatizing is never defined. Right. And so, you know, you, if you never define something and you say restraint is this, and then people go traumatizing and they, they imply it makes you get PTSD, but they don't say it makes you get PTSD. And in 20 years of doing like a uh, restraint training, mm -hmm. close to 25, all over the world, I have not once had a, a behavior and they all would call me. I never once had a behavior analyst call me and said, Meryl, we had a fully functional client. They could do everything. They were fine. We prone them. They had a bad reaction. And Meryl, now they have classic PTSD. No. Never fucking happened. It never happened. And one of the, and the re, what's the reason why? Nobody died. Nobody was about to die. Nobody's arm got ripped off. Nobody's <laughs> arm got broken. Okay. Nobody thought they were about to die. Right. Um, all these kinds of things. Now, could that happen? Could someone in a restraint get PTSD? Yep. Sure. Yep. Sure. Yes, it could happen, mm -hmm. right? If somebody was crushing them and they were about to pass out and they couldn't breathe and they know what dying is and they thought they were going to die, could they get PTSD from being restrained from somebody? Yes. Mm -hmm. Could you get it from having your arm broken, something serious like that? Could you? Yes. But here's the other thing. Would you automatically? No. No. People get broken limbs all the time and do not get PTSD. And they get it in a variety of ways, in fights, in sports, in accidents, in cars. And they don't necessarily get PTSD. People, okay, even on the, the really, on the opposite end of this, people endure tragedy all of the time and not everybody time. gets PTSD. No, and with the other people, what people don't know who are not at least familiar with PTSD, how it develops, who tends to get it and who doesn't. And it doesn't take a lot of study. There's, there's lots of information out there and the two primary things so that people can understand why is it that two people can be in a plane crash and one gets PTSD and the other one doesn't? Why can two people be in a war where a bunch of people get killed and one gets PTSD and the other doesn't? How is that possible? And it's protective and resiliency factors. And people who have more of I know this is who have a history of this, for example. This is bad. I've gotten out of bad situations before. Come on, we're going to figure this out and we're going to do it. Uh, it would be called an um, kind of an internal locus of control. I can do it. I'm in charge of me. I can make things happen. Now, if you are that kind of a person, I go mountain climbing and I kick ass and I learn how to do new things. You know people like this, right? They go do all the shit and they fucking kick ass. Those kind of people who tend to overcome things, struggle, and yeah, it was no big deal. And now I'm going to do this. You know, I'm going to ride my bike a thousand miles. Sure. And, I'm an and it's just like um, <laughs> people who do all this stuff, those kind of people, they're less likely to develop PTSD. Right. Now, people who are more, I can do nothing. You know, the world always screws me over. Um, uh, there's, I have no power. I have no control. I have a long history of maybe failure, right? That would be less protective factors. Doesn't mm -hmm. automatically get PTSD. Right. Okay. But those are some of the factors. Here's other factors during, as an example, 
during um, a, an assault, during a sexual assault? Did you fight back? Mm. Did you act? So this is one. Was there cowering? Was there cowering and withdrawal, which right. is the fear response? Or did people fight and scratch the attacker? And by the way, it's not like a decision you can decide to do. What I'm suggesting is, and this is what other studies have suggested, people with that kind of a mentality of, I'm going to take them down with me. Like, yes. if that's the kind of person you are, right, right. you are less likely to develop PTSD. Because mm -hmm. uh, you are more focused on attack, attack, survive, and you're not thinking, I'm dying, I'm dying, retreating, retreating. Sure. And those are a couple of factors. There's a lot of factors. I only touched on two kind of mm -hmm. big ones. But just so that people understand how you behave, your learning history, your history of reinforcement, your experience with dangerous, deadly things and injury, all of those affect the development. So as an example, first responders, when they teach them, to increase their protective factors against PTSD because they're going to go to a scene and there's going to be blood and death and dismemberment and mm -hmm. everybody can't fucking handle this. So right. what they do is they hire actors, mm -hmm. good actors that scream bloody murder when they try to move their arm and there's blood all over and people right. are screaming and shit's flying back and forth. Mm -hmm. And they do that over and over so that the people um, they are less likely to develop PTSD mm -hmm. because they learn to act right. under difficult circumstances and do things and engage those parts of their brain that are actively doing things, not retreating, not fearing, right? Mm -hmm. And they're practicing doing the active, appetitive behaviors, going, getting, doing, Right? They do this with uh, they do this with pilots too. When they're when you're, they're training pilots, they don't have you only go out into the sky when it's perfectly sunny, when there are no clouds. There's a couple nice people on the plane, and you get to cruise. They actually have you purposely spin out the plane so you are forced right. to act. Right. I mean, there, there's no way to learn how to overcome something like that unless you put yourself in a position to overcome it. But if you have um, lived your whole life putting stock into everybody else of that external locus, I can imagine everything feels tragic. Everything is overwhelming. <laughs> and so the thing yeah. is, what what they listed many of these kinds of traits. And here's the here's the good news about it. When I looked at all the protective and resilient factors, mm -hmm. They're all easy to translate to behaviors people do. 100%. Behaviors people practice. Like if you practiced, it's difficult, but I did it. I practiced. I was a little scared, but I but I did it. And every time you do one of those, right, you're helping insulate yourself against future tragedies, really, mm -hmm. is, is, is what you're doing. Um, so, but they're done in tiny steps. So you can be successful with somebody compassionate nearby. So while you're suffering, they can engage in behaviors that are driven by their compassion for you that are aimed at making you feel a little better. You still have to do what you have to do, but it's, it's a little more bearable now. And right. that's, that's what we can do when people are compassionate towards us. They help us through our difficult times and they may even be the ones to create our difficult times, mm -hmm. you know, um, but they can still be compassionate throughout them. Again, this is what authoritative parents do. Uh, How do we summarize this episode, Meryl? Uh, let's see. I'm going to do like Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Mama! Uh, uh, but uh, no, what's what's bad is just saying, I think it's trauma. If somebody says that to you, how about come back with this? Are you saying you believe they have, that they, they meet the criteria for a DSM disorder? Is that what you're saying? And if they go, no, then ask them this, what the fuck are you saying? <laughs> what the okay. fuck do you mean? <laughs> If you say, I think he has trauma, where is it? You know, is it lost where in the in body? Uh, he has trauma. When did he get it? Did it, was it delivered UPS? When did he acquire uh, it? When did he acquire it? Who was there? Were there witnesses? Did somebody sign for it? Okay. You know, what the fuck do you even mean? Do you mean somebody was mean to him? Do you mean somebody was mean to him and cried? That's a different conversation. That's a different conversation. Yeah. You know, if an asshole was mean to him and he cried, okay, fire them. We're going to go okay. find that <laughs> asshole. <laughs> find that asshole and fire them. But, you know, it's not PTSD. So, you know, um, but by the way, well, another thing I think people confuse is could somebody be adversely affected by a long history of continual low level aversive stimulation? Yes, sure. it's coming from coming from a difficult environment, uh, a harsh family environment, being screamed at constantly. Is that stressful? Could that increase your cortisol levels? Could that cause other problems? I'm very sure it could. But if you theorize they grew up in a rough environment, therefore they have trauma. Whoa, you're not doing any analysis now. You're doing no analysis. You're just reaching for stuff. So if you want to do analysis, and if someone cries trauma, then start looking for fear and start looking for things that reliably produce fear. And that would be your analysis part. And if somebody says he's afraid of being restrained on this mat and then you bring the mat near the kid when he's stable over and over. And if the kid doesn't even flinch, then I would argue there's no fear involved in the restraint because if the restraint were terrifying, the sight of the mat you get restrained on should be sufficient to get some reaction if someone developed PTSD from this. Um, and anyway, the um, that's all I got on this one, I think. Good. So basically, I like the summary of let's bring analysis back, make analysis Please. trendy and cool again. Yeah, and it's For not that people sake. might not have PTSD, but then you should familiarize yourself with the criteria for it. And the, uh, the other thing I would caution people on is this one. Please don't try and make a custom version of PTSD and say this. Well, no, he doesn't. I've seen psychiatrists do this. Uh -huh. Well, no, he doesn't technically need it, but because he has a disability, he's nonverbal. Uh -huh. I really can't ask him if he has nightmares about this, but... That behavior that he does, him hitting his head, that's probably his expression of the, no, 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 no. no. As soon as you get into no, the no, probablys no. and the maybes. You're, you're creating new hypothetical things that you'd have to float past the board of the DSM and they would shut you down. Mm-hmm. As they Just like have. they did with PTSD. Yep. Uh, you know, and because, because again, that sets it up so that everyone gets invited to the PTSD party. And then nobody and, will have PTSD. And then and then and then nobody will. And again, it's demeaning to people whose lives have been basically destroyed by a fear response that has gone haywire. It's I think 
And I've heard from some people who suffer from it that yes, it is quite demeaning mm -hmm. when people say they're equating a child having a tantrum to an adult with PTSD. And clinically, clinically, I think the outcomes of this can be especially troubling if we're we're allocating so much time and resources to people with perceived complex PTSD, and we're taking away from services that could be given to people with actual PTSD. That's a huge issue that we think yeah. is a compassionate thing to do. Well, if it's compassionate, <laughs> it's driven by sadness, remember. Mm. Misaligned <laughs> motivations. Misaligned motivations. All right, Kayla. It's been a blast, as it usually is it, with you. It's been fun. I hope people got something out of it. And, you know, go learn more about PTSD. It's an interesting, it's it's an unfortunate, yeah. but an interesting and a fascinating mm -hmm. um, problem mm -hmm. that is not going away. Yep. Um, it's, it's something that happens to people. Mm -hmm. and, Read about uh, how it's treated most efficiently. I think that's a great place to start, too. Uh, yeah, and also see what the diagnostic criteria are, and also everybody understand we're talking about fear as the base problem. And if you don't see fear, then that's likely not the issue. And if you don't know what fear looks like, I, I, I don't even know if you're in the right field. I mean, it's just, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty apparent. Um, so, you know, you, it'll, it'll find you. It'll, it'll find you. You don't really have to look that hard for it. Yeah. Agreed. All right, Meryl, it's been a blast and a half, like I said, and I look forward to the next conversation when we get to ruin science. <laughs> Absolutely. Take care. Bye. <laughs>